Leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Welcome to Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath, where experienced leaders share their own brand of leadership to help you develop and improve your own leadership capabilities. And now, here's your host, Dr. Gary. I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Welcome again to Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Today's guest is a management consultant, executive coach, a TEDx speaker, and contributor to both Harvard Business Review, Forbes, and more. She specializes in developing high-performing leaders and workforces, motivating them with her wit, wisdom, and humanity. Oh, we're going to dig into that today. Her client list includes American Express, Orvis, the Girl Scouts, Janssen Pharmaceuticals, and Highlights for Children. She spoke at the TEDx Baylor School on why there's so much conflict at work and what we can do to fix it. She's the author of Workplace Wisdom, How to Resolve Interpersonal Conflicts in the Workplace. Conflict in the Workplace? Really? Maybe we can learn a few things from today's guest, Please welcome Liz Kislik. Hi, Liz. Hi, Dr. Gary. How are you? I'm fantastic. I'm really looking forward to you. We talked earlier and learned a lot about your background when you were first starting out in this world of business. Let's go back there right out of college when you started with a small company and Got some real leadership experience as a young lady, didn't you? (laughs) Yes, you could say road tested. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Yes, sometimes with tire tracks. (laughs) Yes, tire tracks. There are times when we're in leadership positions, we don't know if we're leading or just falling down and getting run over. So let's talk about those tire tracks. Let's talk about the early time in your leadership opportunities and what you learned from that. Okay. So most of my leadership opportunities were, I'm going to call them serendipitous as opposed to accidental, but they were probably a little bit of both. The first one was really right out of college. I went to work for a marketing agency where I had been a phone rep during the summer and did another summer for them where I was responsible for setting up a little bit of a personnel department, which didn't really exist at that point. And they made the best offer to me when I graduated college. So I walked in thinking I was going to be an account executive. And instead, I was the interim manager for a department of two dozen statistical and tabulation clerks Ah. because the real manager was out on maternity leave and I was a convenient, although inexperienced substitute. And I had to develop a good enough relationship with those women quickly enough that they were willing to actually train me in their jobs and then be kind and gracious to me as I crawled and then walked my way through supervising them. You know, it's interesting that you start off by saying I had to develop a relationship with them first. And I mean, let's face it, coming out of college, you you had to be in this position thinking, you know, what am I going to do, right? You don't even know what the job is. 
right? So you went into this with an open mind and, you know, open arms going, okay, I'm kind of here. How do we do this? And they started to teach you what the functional job was, the technical job. And then how did you like eventually translate that into and transform that into actually managing the people? Or did this woman come back off maternity leave and you stepped away? How did all that happen? She did come back, but there were, I don't remember if it was four weeks, six weeks, there was a period of time where I was actually responsible for that department's work. Mm. And the advantage that I had was I already knew something about the company. So I knew what the purpose of their work was. I knew how it got used by others. If I hadn't known that, oh my goodness, I don't know if I could have survived it. But in fact, as I said, they were really gracious to me. They were all older than I was. So I tried to behave, you know, the way I was raised to, to respect everybody and to treat everybody well. And so they really were forthcoming about their work, showed me their work. They could not show me what it meant to be responsible for their work. And one of the things that was a real eye-opener for me, their boss, who I knew, a li- I mean, I knew to say hello to, I didn't actually know her, was a screamer. Mm. And I was not. <laughs> I was not. And when things apparently would happen in that department that were disrupted or out of joint in some way, there would be screaming from the boss and from the staff. And I called a staff meeting, I don't know, two weeks in because I knew you were supposed to have staff meetings and there were things we needed to talk about, right? And they saw that, I think, as an opportunity to tell me everything that was going wrong. And they were raising their voices. That was what they were used to. So on the inside, I was completely freaked out because it was not what I was used to. And what I actually said to them was, you know, I can't hear you if you're all yelling at me. Mm. And I want to hear you. And I went on in that way, but quietly. So they had to get quiet to hear me. And that was when we all knew it was just really going to be different. And we were going to do it differently. For the time that we had, we were going to do it differently. And I have to tell you, I give them so much credit because they were kind and gracious to me and they didn't have to be. Yeah. And, and I think that you started off by saying, look, I, I, I showed them based on my upbringing. I showed them respect for the work that they did. They were older than you. So that, that maybe was kind of a natural thing. But one of the things that's interesting here is I listened to you talk about it is you didn't take on the title or the role as, as quote unquote boss. You were, you knew it was interim and you wanted to build relationships to start with, but there was a behavior that you didn't agree with the screaming, yelling behavior, which is kind of fascinating, but as a leader, regardless of what was going on above you or around you, 
as you had your staff meeting with these people you worked with, you set an expectation by telling them the consequence of their yelling, which was, I can't hear you. There's an awful lot of great leadership in that phrase, right? So you can keep yelling and I can't hear you or I won't listen. And, and people go, oh, ah. So there's this kind of wake up moment for them with that simple phrase of expectation, I can't hear you. I, I think there's an awful lot of leadership lessons in that one little phrase. For me, I wasn't concerned about leadership in the moment. You know, I wasn't thinking, what does it take to be a leader? Um, I was thinking, if they scream at me, I can't help them. And I knew I couldn't scream enough to have them be quiet. So I just went the reverse way. You know, it, it wasn't a plan. It was just a stroke of luck or good instinct or whatever you want to call it. I'm very lucky it worked. I'll call it good instinct and a stroke of genius because we do these things naturally based on what we stand for. And I'm going to guess that yelling at people was not something that was an acceptable behavior in your life. So you're basically saying to them, this is not acceptable. I'm not going to let, I can't hear you if you keep doing this. And by saying it quietly, you're demonstrating a counter-cultural expectation at that moment with that group of people, which, which is fascinating. You know, we, we sometimes in leadership, we do things like you said on instinct because it's just the right thing to do. You could have, and I know there's people out there thinking right now, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Of course she's going to do that. It was the obvious thing to do. No, not necessarily. In that culture, some people would have just started yelling back and telling them, you need to stop yelling. You need to shut up. You need to this. You need Right? Not only is that right, instinctively, if I were going to do anything else, I would have run away. <laughs> I mean, forget the yelling. You know, to have two dozen people that you really don't know yelling at you when you don't come from yelling, the the instinct to get out is pretty strong. I also was, I have to say, very happy with myself that I didn't cry, which would also have been a very natural instinct. I mean, at the time, I, I was 21. I didn't have experience. But for whatever reason, I was able to stay calm. Mm. And they weren't used to calm. Mm. So whether it was scary to them or intriguing to them, it gave me enough room that once they were quiet, I could ask what their concerns were and they took turns and they could tell me and I could listen and write them down and show that I was concerned along with them and I could commit to them, which I did, that, you know, we'll have to figure this out. I'll have to get help. I don't know the answer. Um, there's a real advantage in a way to having it be obvious that you don't know the answer. Then you don't have to try to pretend. I think too many people get caught up in trying to put a good face on it. And I certainly did that in my other real trial by fire, <laughs> which I know you like so much, um, which was a little later. I did get to be an account executive and, um, I got promoted every six months because 
if I saw things that needed to be done that weren't being done, I would just start to do them. And in a relatively small, privately held firm, one of the advantages is you can do that. And I was rewarded for it. So that all seemed great. And then by the time I was 23, uh, the fellow who was vice president of call center operations was not working out. He had, he was fairly new. And the senior leadership fired him and promoted me. Mm. And there I was responsible for a 300-person call center. Wow. Wow. You know, there's a couple of things I want to go back to that you said that are that are really important. Um you know, and, and I and I have a feeling that we're going to hear more about this with with this 300 person call center, and and that is the, this the kind of this juxtaposition of of uh, promoting the expert from within. That uh, and we've seen this with the best salesperson, the best technician, the best uh, information technology software developer, the best, the best, the best. They get promoted to the to be the boss, and they they know the answers. And quite often, in, and I work with organizations all the time, it's the worst possible option because they now, because they were the best, they expect everybody else to do it their way. But when you go in ignorant of the technical skills and you're not the expert, you're the exact opposite, you actually become much more of a business coach because the only thing you can do is, is ask questions and say, I don't know. And there's real power in that. And I think a lot of people in leadership positions don't understand how powerful it is to sit in a meeting with a bunch of people that you're working with or direct reports and say, gee, I don't know, what what should we do? So I agree with you, but only up to a point, and here's why. You can say that in the very beginning, but if you don't know a little farther in when they expect you to be learning and figuring it out, then they think, Oh, this is not good for us. <laughs> That's an excellent point, Liz, and excellent point. You have to learn enough to know. Well, let's face it. If you're going to be in that position, like with 300 people, you've got to know when they're doing their job, when they're not doing their job, if they're doing it well or not. You have to assess all of that. You have to know the job in order to be able to do that, at least to some level of expertise. So you're absolutely right. That's great clarification. Eventually, you need to know. <laughs> yes. And even if you don't know, your not knowing has to come from a place of strength and not weakness. Mm. So it's not, I don't know, I'm helpless. Because the direct reports at that time, I guess there were three or four managers and about a dozen supervisors, something like that. And, and then all, all the other reps, um, some training staff. I had to know enough that, in fact, the managers and supervisors would be willing to bring problems to me as opposed to just going around me, Mm. which also in a smaller company can be very easy to do. Mm -hmm. And the advantage that I had was I did really know the company by then, and I also understood client expectation. So... I had never been responsible for an operation like that, but I knew a lot of the other pieces and I had come 
out of that operation. That was the operation I worked in when I was in college. So I knew enough that I could get by without just acting dumb. Right. Right. Which which is crucial. Yeah. So like we said, you weren't working from a position of weakness, but you were right. working from a position of knowledge in terms of what you said earlier is you knew the pur- purpose of the work. You knew the purpose of the company and you knew the company. So there was some some what I call in leadership transferable knowledge from one position to another that allowed you to speak intelligently, know the nomenclature of the company and you weren't a complete idiot. I mean, right. you, you didn't walk in there not knowing anything. Okay. So very good, very good clarification on those points. I like that. Um, and I, I, I'll tell you, uh, I took a lot of different jobs when I was in, in my, uh, in my youth and turned organizations around in areas that I knew nothing about. When I was with Procter and Gamble, I took over two paper machines. I knew nothing about paper making, but what I did was like you did, I built the relationships. I showed respect and I worked a full day in management and supervision in my job as a manager. And then at five o'clock at night, I'd put jeans and a a, a shirt on and go work on the paper machines for a month. I did that so I could see what they were putting up with. And I was never going to be a paper maker. I mean, these guys were brilliant. These people really, I mean, they could, they could touch a piece of equipment and feel the vibration of it and tell you that the bearing was going to fail in a week. I mean, they were brilliant, but to your point, having some level of knowledge of what they're dealing with is extremely important so that you can help them solve their problems and to empathize with them. You said listening to them and empathizing. Very, very important stuff, Liz. And I want to emphasize the point you just made, Dr. Gary, because that's a beautiful point. So many times in management and leadership, people do not have the actual experience themselves. And you may not be able to get it. It may not be practical to really get it. But it is both functionally better and better in terms of respect if you can show you have learned about it in a deep way. I mean, I had started out in college on the phone, so I knew something about that job. And I made it my business, even though I didn't enjoy it. I would get on the phone, not every week, but from time to time, because when you can do the job or something close to it, sometimes just observing it very deeply, done by different people, not only by one person, gives you enough insight so that you can share real knowledge, sometimes from a perspective they don't have. Yeah. Yes. You you bring in a, a whole new perspective, a new set of eyes. So let's Let's go back to this 300-person call center because you took this over, and I can remember when we talked uh, briefly before, you talked about how overwhelming it was when you started. Talk, uh, Share with your listeners what that was like and, and how you overcame that. I don't know that I overcame it. I think it was always overwhelming. I think it's one of the reasons that I'm a consultant now and not running a large operation because I don't like leaving stuff unfixed. Mm. (laughs) And with that many people, and there were multiple projects going on at once, people needed attention all day long for problems. 
all day long. And some of them were things we could address immediately, as is true in any shop. And some of them were structural. Some of them were not within my jurisdiction. Some of them were client-related. And some of them were that difficult, difficult problem that so many leaders have experienced when you inherit staff you didn't choose. And all of those things meant that there were more problems all the time than I could feel good about leaving at the end of the day. Mm. And I worked six days a week without fail just to try to stay even and I did not feel it was enough. Mm. And there are some environments in which you actually need to be able to tolerate the imperfections that are within a reasonable range. And that was actually hard for me. I didn't have enough access to all the people myself often enough. I couldn't by myself change enough of the policies. I couldn't by myself dictate to clients. There were so many reasons that I couldn't call a clear shot. And this doesn't bother me at all with my clients. They can follow my advice or not. That's up to them. It's their business. But in those days, this was my business. And so you felt you felt much more attached to the outcomes and the uh, expectations that clients had of you and whether you were meeting those expectations or not. Plus being young, let's face it, your reputation was just starting. You were just starting to build that and feeling out of control and having things that were not in your control as you're learning to do this big job all at once, right? It's on the job training as a, as a leader, plus organizational structure, organizational development, people development, customer uh, uh, relations, uh, financial understanding, the financial um, uh, budgets of, you know, 300 people on and on and on for a young person without that experience. It's, it's gotta be overwhelming. Not only that, operations really needs to gear toward consistency. And once you have effectiveness, efficiency. So the kinds of problem solving have to do with mitigating individual people's problems so they almost don't rise to the level of where they can affect the operation and making the operation run. They aren't those. It's not always about what would be the best thing. Sometimes it's about what can we tolerate so that we're in a reasonable range. Yeah. And some people are better suited to that than I actually was. Well, that's really, uh, you know, great that, you know, you share this with us because some people find in those environments that they can just let it go at the end of the day. They go home, they do their work and they put their uh, put their work clothes on again the next morning and go fight the fight again, because that's what it feels like every day. And what I'm hearing you say is, is that just wasn't the right position for you, although you were successful at it, you did okay, but it wasn't day in and day out. It just wasn't the right position for you. That's exactly right. Because I like to fight a different fight (laughs) on different days. Um, 
And in fact, what I went on to was responsibility for client services, sort of conceptualizing the projects, setting them up so they could run well in the operation, serving much more as a conduit and liaison between the client and client needs and the operation and what was the best the operation could deliver. And in that role, I was able to bring more of my talents to bear and didn't feel like I was gritting my teeth so much. You know, that's a great point is that um, just because we're not successful in one position, whether it's a leadership position or not, doesn't mean that we can't be successful in another. I, I had a guy that I coached for years in uh, several leadership positions and the uh, CEO always knew he had the talent. He just couldn't find the right spot for him. Finally, they put him in in a position where he was responsible for his own part of the business. And he, uh, Liz, it was just amazing. The transformation of this man was incredible. He went from he took this this division from four to sixteen million in like a year and a half, and people there just loved him. And this is a guy that had been struggling and struggling and struggling, and to see him blossom like that uh, was just amazing. And I. I Quite frankly, I just never, I, I, I remind myself of this often because at the time I have to say that I pretty much given up on him. You know, I'd worked with him for years. I'm like, you're just not getting it. You're just not getting it. And he wasn't, but you know, his heart was in it. You could tell that's why we kept working with him. His heart was in it. So sometimes for some people, I think the message that needs to be heard is if you're not happy and you don't feel comfortable and you're not doing all that well, that doesn't mean that you're a failure. It just means that maybe you're in the wrong spot. Right yes. seat on the bus, as yes. Jim Collins says in Good to Great. Let's find the yes. right seat on the bus, right? Not every seed can grow in every terrain. Mm. Yeah, great metaphor. Yeah. So how have you taken all of this interesting experience as a young woman and, and uh, move forward. And I remember you saying um, in a previous conversation that you ended up leaving that company at about 30 years old. You were an executive vice president, but you said enough is enough and uh, uh, wanted to go on to new things in your life. And now you help companies overcome some of the things that you saw back then, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. So how, how, how have those early, how have those, the, all of those experiences in your 20s translated into your philosophies of leadership and consulting today? Because I, Hey, I, I'm going to, I'm going to reread this. It said right here, your wit, your wisdom and your humanity. So we, we need to hear more about the wit and the humanity here. <laughs> well, the humanity, I hope you'll hear the wit. It comes up or it doesn't. We'll it just see. pops out of anywhere. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. So I really understood what it feels like when the job goes bad. Mm. I understood what it is in this case to deal with difficult customers and to have that upset you and to deal with difficult people and have it upset you and to feel that your supervisor didn't understand you. And uh, in my early years consulting, many of the companies that I worked with hired me specifically to look at their call centers and I could interview any personnel 
in a call center and understand what was going on with them in ways that the senior leadership of those companies did not necessarily understand. Mm. So that gave me an advantage in explaining, first of all, what the costs of those disruptions actually were, and also that there were alternatives to the current conditions. Plus, I often had credibility with the workforce so that when we made a change, if I was leading the change process, they knew I knew what I was talking about, even if they didn't think their management knew. Mm. Because you had been there, because you, from the bottom up, you had been there. And not only had I been there, but I talked about it from the bottom up. It is very easy once you are no longer on the bottom to forget just how painful it can be and to sort of aggregate the experience of a whole bunch of frontline workers into a kind of profile that you think of as your frontline worker. Mm. But they all have different experiences and different lives and different needs and different styles. And acknowledging that makes a real difference in their willingness to come along and play the new game you are asking them to play. And that's particularly true if you've asked them to play three new games in the last year. Mm. You know, we're going to do it this way. Oh, no, we're going to do it that way. Oh, we're There are so many um, flavor of the month kinds of change initiatives. You know, we're going to have a campaign for quality. We're going to have a campaign for sales. We're going to have people get exhausted and burnt out and they feel like nothing will ever make a difference. And then the people who stay are the people who, when you ask them, why do you stay? You're complaining about this and you're saying that's not so good. Why do you stay? They say, I like the people. Mm. The hours are good. I like the people. The commute isn't too bad. I wish they'd pay me more. That work sucks. <laughs> Come on. It's so normal. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's so normal. And so, hey, you so don't I have a have... question for you. I don't understand. Sure. It's something I don't understand because, and th- this is nothing new. Okay. Um, in, in Search of Excellence and other, other books like it, uh, they, they uh, document how executives go to work. Like at Nordstrom's, they go to work there two weeks a year and they, they know what it's like to be on the front line. I have client. I have a roofing company client that's uh, the second largest roofing company in the country, and their executives spend time on the roof all the time. The owner of the company, who's in his seventies, get in the field, get in the field, get in the field. I've got a, a distribution food company, uh, about three hundred people down in Florida, and the owner, okay, has accounts because it's a really a sales organization. Everybody in the company, everybody is engaged with accounts and servicing their uh, their customers and their clients. Why is it that some companies and some executives resist having that kind of front, you know, uh, right in front of the customer experiences, whether it's at Starbucks giving somebody a cup of coffee or a Best Buy selling an iPhone? Why aren't these executives out there doing this stuff? What are they afraid of? That is a heart of the matter kind of question. Hmm. So, I think there are so many things. One is they are afraid of their ability to deliver what they think their boss wants. And their boss may want a certain amount of face time and their boss may want certain kind of reports and presentations and whatever they think those expectations are, 
if the cultural norm is not to be on the roof, if the cultural norm is not go learn the work, then it actually is countercultural to do that good, deep, important human work of learning what the work really is mm -hmm. and what the workers really do. And the culture can pull them away from the front line and into this weird world that is the conference room. And they lose touch. Mm. And once you lose touch in that way, there's this kind of terrible pattern that happens where many leaders end up othering their own workers. Because if you really were to understand what they needed, you couldn't possibly make the policies and rules that you make. It would be too unrealistic. But you think you need to make those policies and rules to satisfy the demands you're getting from your peers or your leaders. And the whole thing becomes more attenuated, more conceptual, and less real. Less real. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So let's let just in a couple more minutes. We don't have a lot of time, but I want to I want to ask you a little bit about this this thing that you write about that you you know really get involved in conflict, workplace conflict. You know how do how, you, you have any like uh, go to thoughts, philosophies, ideas when people are in a position of of conflict? How do I you know, what's what's the Harvard Business Business Review five step approach to reducing conflict at work? What 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 can you tell us, Liz? I want to simplify it even past that. I did have five steps in my TEDx. I want to give you one question. If you ask yourself in a conflict, what else is going on? And just keep asking that question you will see that your beliefs about it and your position on it and the things you want are not the only things happening. If you only get one shot at it, it's that. It's recognizing that whatever you're experiencing is not the only thing happening. So whether you have to do research and go out into the field and talk to people, so that's really great whether you have to look at the logical conclusions of your own actions and confront what you may not have been addressing. There are many, many other things. But the first thing is to say, what else is going on with that person? Why would they be taking a different position from mine? Why would a smart person do something that looks so dumb to me? They have a reason. What's that reason? What are the underlying conditions that I can't see that would cause somebody to behave in that way or to want those things? Getting outside your own head would be the absolute number one best single thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. I've, you know, it reminds me of that uh, company that I mentioned, the roofing company is Baker Roofing. And, and I say that because Frank Baker, one of the owners, has been working there 40 years Prentice and, and Frank are the brothers that own the company. And Frank said to me one day, he says, you know, sometimes Prentice and I have arguments. You know, we're brothers. And I, my brother works with me at Stateris and we have arguments. 
And he says, you know, and we'll figure it out after a while. But he says, I started thinking after a while about some of these arguments and the conflicts. He says, when you're in an argument and you win the argument, what do you win? (laughs) And I'm like, that I'm going to remember. Because it's all about ego. It's not about position. It's not about listening to the other person's understanding of and perspective of what's going on with them. As you said, there could be a million things going on. And we just need to be a little bit more empathetic, a little bit more understanding, a little bit more loving in these conflicts and try to reduce the conflicts and reduce the fights because they're not helping. No, which is different from having disagreements and differences of opinion. Yes. Those are very worthy because they help everybody see more. But when it feels like you are against each other, Mm -hmm. that's when you know you're not looking deeply enough. Yeah. So I want to finish up today's podcast, Liz, with my favorite question that I ask all of my guests. And I don't know if I warned you on this or not, but here it comes. If you could write yourself a letter and send it back to yourself, maybe to that Liz in her 20s, she's the vice president, the executive vice president, you know, you're struggling with this stuff. What would that letter say to Liz if you could write it to Liz years ago and send it to you and give yourself some of that wisdom that you've learned over the years? I would say, don't be so afraid for two reasons. And I would give both parts. First of all, your instincts are actually pretty good. So trust yourself a little more. But the second thing is you can repair almost anything. So long as you're still there, you can go back. You can say you misunderstood. You can apologize. You could say we need more time. There's almost always something you can do to improve the situation. So you'll know something to do and all will not be lost, even if you get it wrong. Yeah, that's that's great. That's great because communication is a process, not an event. Sometimes when we get into some of these difficult conversations and it's quote unquote over weeks later, we argue over you said this and I said that and we argue over it. And studies show that after 30 days, you only remember 6% of what you heard anyway. So if I only remember 6%, that means 94%. And I'm going to tell you exactly what you said. I don't even remember what I said. And we're going to argue over it. To your point, and we do this in our leadership program with coaching, we have a coaching do-over. We're going to have a communication do-over and say, look, maybe I misunderstood. Let's do this over. Let's try again to kind of slow down a little bit and understand each other. And I think that is some great wisdom and advice And understand that life is a process. It's not an event. And I think we can all learn from that in everything that we do. So thank you, Liz. It's been a pleasure, Dr. Gary. Thank you. Liz Keslick, I really appreciate your wit, your wisdom, your insights. I've just been great today. Thank you so much. And just another great podcast. I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Take care. Be good and be great. Thanks for being with us on Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about the work Dr. Gary is doing, visit statarius.com. S-T-A-T-A-R-I-U-S dot com. Music for Leading from the Front is provided by Peter Katz. For more of his music, visit petercats.com. <laughs>